it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, so welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today we have episode 290. We have three great listener questions that we're going to go ahead and answer. And so without any further ado, I will dive into the first one. So this is from Quincy Brown. What advice would you give a new investor who wants to invest $1,000 with an additional $100 monthly? So Andrew, what are your thoughts on Quincy's great question? You know, I had my answer in mind and I was going to do the standard kind of template that I always say to people. But I would say, actually, if I was brand new, I would probably take a small piece of that and just buy something that I was familiar with and then maybe look at the $1,000 and then the $100 monthly later. And the reason for that is because if you've never bought a stock before, it can be kind of intimidating. It's not like a checking account. You put $100 in a checking account. You come back tomorrow, you have $100 in your checking account. You put, let's say, even $5 into a stock. Tomorrow, it could be down 25 cents. So I think getting used to that might take a week or two. And so why not just buy something? If you like Apple, yeah, you have an iPhone, buy some Apple. Or if you find yourself in Microsoft Excel every day, if you're fortunate enough to do that 40 hours a week, maybe you buy some Microsoft and just get used to the process and see just really how easy and, and simple it is. I would do that first and then look at the $1,000 and $100 monthly. What yeah. about you? Yeah, that's great advice. I think that's actually, I like that idea because it kind of encompasses a little bit of the Peter Lynch idea, you know, buy something that you know, but it also helps you, you know, break the glass on getting investing because it is scary. Opening an account could be a little bit overwhelming. It's it's easy. The platforms make it very simple to do, but it's a little overwhelming and you realize what you're doing and it's not a checking account. Once you start to open the brokerage account, you realize yeah, this is not a bank account. This is something different. And I know 
I did this and I'm sure you probably did too. When you buy your first company or first few companies, you watch them every day, all day long. Right. Yeah. You just, you want to see what's happening with Apple and whether it's going up or down or how you're doing with all that. And I think after a while, you kind of get away from that activity. And so I think that's probably a, kind of a really smart idea to start simple and small like that. And then once you've dangled your feet or gotten your feet wet, then you can start kind of unpacking. So let's say that somebody, let's say that Quincy does this. And so he invests, I don't know, 100 or $200. He's got $800 to start investing. Then what would be your recommendation? I feel like you can take two different paths. You could say, I'm going to be a little more active here, or I really just want it to be set it and forget it. So if you want a set it and forget it, and you want to be invested like everybody else, just buy an index fund, which is a basket of the big companies that are in the stock market. And that will give you diversification so you can't get super hurt from one individual company going under. And that, that's a great way to start. So you could do um, an S&P 500 index like SPY. I like to recommend that one. For some reason, that's easy for me to remember, SPY, SPY. And you just buy that and then you could continue buying that every month and you don't really have to look at it. There is a danger there. You do want to understand that the stock market is like a roller coaster. So I would encourage don't just stop there. Continue the learning journey. The other approach would be to start looking at individual stocks. And you could find a service like what I offer, where I offer my advice on what exact stocks I'm picking. And you could just follow that. Or you could start to, I guess, roll up your sleeves and start doing picking different stocks yourself. So maybe if it was, you know, if you knew you're going to do an additional $100 a month, maybe 800 is a lot to take a bite on your first real stock, if you will. Maybe you break that up. So I don't think there's any one right answer to any of that. But maybe if you have a sense of, I know I want to be a little more involved, or I know I want to trust somebody to do it for me, or I want to just be completely hands-off, I think that helps answer the question. And hopefully you can take one of those ideas and run with it. Yeah, that's great advice. It really goes back to that whole idea of trying to decide what kind of investor you want to be and how active you want to do in all this. Sometimes there's a stigma. I've said this before. Sometimes there's a stigma of, you know, you got to be a stock picker. You got to be, you know, an indexer and you don't, you can do both. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, building a base using index funds. And then, you know, if you really want to start to learn how the market works and start to investigate individual companies like Apple, for example, that could be your your test run. And you could spend some time really kind of trying to analyze it and think about all the principles that we've talked about through the years and use those as, as a guidepost or, or a map of this is how you can start to try to analyze a company and look deeper in, and determine whether that's really what you want to do. And I think those kinds of ideas too are probably a little safer and also will keep you in the market. Who here raised their hand has, has bought a, you know, kind of gone out in a limb and bought something maybe they shouldn't have bought and they end up losing all their thousand dollars or you know, 800 of the thousand dollars because they bought at too high of a price. The, the, the company tanks and they get out of the market and they never invest again. And we don't want anybody to do that. And so I think it's better to, like Andrew said, take a smaller bite of something and then decide what kind of investor you want to be and then work from there. And there's nothing wrong with deciding I want to be an indexer and then you decide individual stocks are really the way I want to go and vice versa. And so you could really branch into the 
individual stocks and go, you know, this is more work than I really want to do. And, and become an index, you know, using mutual funds and index funds. There's nothing wrong with that either. It's a, the more important part is, is investing and staying invested and continuing to do it because my favorite phrase, the water dripping on a stone will make an impression. So if you keep at it, 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 you will end up in a good place at the end. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Great advice. Thanks. All right, so let's move on to the next question. So we have, uh, should someone invest in the South African market? Or is investing overseas a better decision? And this is from D at NNYG. So, Andrew, what are your thoughts on this question? This is kind of interesting. I guess to give context, obviously, me and Dave are both in the United States, U.S. citizens. So it's natural for people to want to invest in the own country that they're in. And I know when I first started investing, that's what came absolutely natural to me. And that makes sense. As far as continuing to invest that way, there are a few reasons that I continue to look primarily in the U.S. stock market. And it's because they have the biggest companies and also one of the biggest GDPs in the world. China would be 
right up there in GDP, depending on how you're measuring it. But China also has a history of nationalizing foreign investors. You can go back to the 1950s. They used to, they had some history doing that. So, you know, you take China out of the equation, what's left? You have the US, they have a huge GDP. So that's kind of, and GDP, if you're not an econ master, you know, GDP is just like a, a way to measure how big the economy is. So it's very helpful in my mind to find the big economies and the big companies because those have a lot of advantages over small companies. So for example, I wouldn't necessarily want to invest in somebody who's coming up with a new soda product when I know there's Pepsi or Coca-Cola who could very easily create something that's better. That sounds harsh. And if you're in that business, I don't mean to offend you, but that's that's just as a generalization, you can kind of use that framework for a lot of different businesses. And so it, a lot of the businesses that are in the United States have these great advantages. And that's why I primarily invest in the United States. Not to say that there aren't opportunities in South Africa, but admittedly, that's a much smaller economy. And there isn't much US or let's say people in Europe who are buying stocks that are down there for many reasons. But one would be that generally it's easier for bigger companies to compete against littler ones if they're in the same field. Yeah. Have you looked at South Africa at all? I No, I never have. Admittedly, the really my only exposure to any sort of economics or any sort of, not, not investment, but much about the South African market is through the wine industry. When I was working in the wine biz years ago, uh, I did some research on some of the wines that, that came out of South Africa and they had fantastic products. And they were not as well distributed or as well known as some other parts of the world, but they, they made some great stuff. But that's really been my only economic exposure to the South African market. And so that's not been some place that I have been drawn to. It doesn't mean that there aren't great investments there. But as somebody like Andrew was saying, you know, the home bias is, is real. <laughs> and when you, when you live in your country, whether it's South Africa or whether it's Australia or whether it's uh, Japan, it's very normal to want to invest in your particular geography because you know it the best. You may not know the ins and outs of the intricacies of each particular company, but when you live in that country, you are familiar with the culture, you're familiar with the language, the economics and what's going on, the news, the trends. All those things are going to be far more natural to you than when you invest outside of your own country. And one of the things that I've always struggled with, I'm getting somewhat getting over it, but not as much, is when you invest in someplace like South Africa, or I'm sorry, South America, like Brazil, for example, where my fiance is from. I know the country somewhat, air quotes, somewhat, but I don't always understand the differences in the culture between the United States and Brazil. And so sometimes when you are analyzing or thinking about an, a potential investment there, and this is not a slam against the country or the, the, the companies by any stretch, but it's different. And so you have to account for that. And one of the ways you can account for that is trying to build in a margin of safety to hedge your bets against being wrong because what happens in the Netherlands is going to be different than what happens in New Jersey. And so you have to kind of try to account for that. And that's kind of the way that I look at it. So is it better to invest overseas? 
I think it really depends on what you're trying to do and where you're trying to go. Now, again, U.S. citizen home bias, take this for what it's worth. But if I think about a lot of my friends that are in, in the investing community via Twitter, whether they're in Europe or whether they're in Southeast Asia or whether they're in Canada, a lot of them invest in the United States because it's the largest GDP, it's the largest economy in the world, and they have some of the better, the best businesses in the world and they're great investments. Berkshire Hathaway, Google, Microsoft, Visa, you know, the list goes on and on. And so that's why a lot of people choose to invest there. But I think to Andrew's point, if you're looking at a smaller company in your you know, network or your home turf, I think it's easier to analyze that company than it would be in another con- in another country because you don't understand some of those things that I was discussing. And we also haven't really talked about the accounting is different. The accounting in the United States is different than the rest of the world. It's not hugely different, but it, it is different. And sometimes there can be some shadiness that goes on outside the United States. And Without pointing fingers, China, you know, there are some companies that they don't get regulated as well as maybe they do in the United States. And so, again, that's something I'm not saying don't invest in China. It's not for me personally. But if you are going to do that kind of thing, you have to think about the downside and what are the potential risks. And you have to factor that into your investment. If you don't, then you're going to be caught surprised. And I think that's why I have chosen to primarily invest in the United States. But I am looking at Brazil and I do have some investments in Canada and Europe and I guess one in Taiwan. Don't need to think too hard about what company that is. But anyway, so, you know, I have learned to try to branch out, but I'm still more focused on the home bias. What about you? What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Yeah, I would say that was a really great answer, by the way. That was a lot of good information. I would say that this is like a a dynamic thing. And I think it's going to change over the decades, maybe. I mean, hopefully for the US, I'm in the US, so I hope that things don't change too much because businesses here are good. But for example, in the 1980s, the Japanese companies were really, I mean, not only was their stock market really good, but those businesses were really, really good. They brought what's called Six Six Sigma manufacturing, and they just had the ultimate, and they still do, but the ultimate quality in, in the products they would create. That's why you saw a lot of their cars come over here and still do well. But for a while, that was the stock market to be in. You can listen to our episode we did with Eric Schlein way back in the archives if you want to hear a couple horror stories of how that can go the other way. But the point is, is that these things are fluid. They're, they change over time. So if you're picking stocks, you want to be cognizant of how these factors are. So I think it's a really, really good question. And I think it should be considered. And I'm glad this listener brought it up. The only other thing I would add, which is depending on if you're in a retirement account, it might be a little bit different than if you're in a regular taxable brokerage account. But there are also... Every country is different in taxes, and the U.S. has tax treaties with some countries, but not with other ones. So, for example, if the U.S. had... I don't know South Africa because those companies have not come up on my screens. They don't meet my criteria for one reason or the other. But let's pretend that there is no tax treaty with South Africa. Then 
you would get taxed as a U if you were in the US, you would get taxed from the IRS, plus you would get taxed from the South African authorities. If you are investing in a country where there is a tax treaty, you probably will only get taxed one or the other, or you could get taxed in both, and then the IRS is going to give you a refund because of the tax treaty. So that's another thing to keep in mind when it comes to investments, because if you make 12% on your money per year, but you're paying 30% in taxes and then 20% in taxes, it doesn't take a mathematician to realize that you're not actually growing as much as if you had paid no taxes or little taxes. So those are all factors and hopefully that additional information is helpful. Yeah. Gotta love taxes, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. So next question we have is how do you identify the risks in business with high payout ratios, but also high growth like PepsiCo? This is from Luke. So this is a great question too. Do you want to give a brief overview for beginners what the payout ratio is and what he's referring to there? Yeah. So for those in the unknown, so here's the <laughs> the down low, uh, to use a phrase from my generation. A payout ratio is the ratio that a company is comparing what a company will pay out. Most people refer to this as dividends, but you can also include share buybacks as well. But let's just stick with dividends right now. It's the comparison of the dividends that a company pays out to the earnings or the bottom line or the net income that a company earns for the year. Now, PepsiCo is one of the dividend aristocrats. They've been paying a dividend for a very long time. And so this is something that dividend investors follow very closely. And basically what it is, it's a ratio between the dividends that they pay out and the net income or the earnings that the company generates. And generally, the higher the number, the the better the dividend is, but it also means that it could be more at risk. And so those are those are kind of the I guess the factors when you're thinking about a payout ratio. So does that help answer that question? Yeah, I think it does. Okay. I miss anything? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. So when we look at a company like PepsiCo, then how do we balance the payout ratio a high one? and growth. How do you kind of balance that out? Yeah, it's tough, right? Because by definition, if a stock has a high payout ratio, they have less profits to invest in themselves. And so that makes it very hard for them to grow unless there are other reasons for their growth that don't need as much investment. So the there's always trade-offs. You know, We love to say it depends, but in reality, there's always trade-offs. So the trade-off is if there's a higher payout ratio, the yield you're getting, which is the dividend income you receive when you buy the stock, is probably going to be much higher. But that also depends on what the price of the stock is. So that's the plus side to having the, the higher payout ratio. The, the negative side is what you just or I guess what I just said, <laughs> is the idea that you don't have as much money to reinvest in the business to have future growth. So in my mind, it's it's really case by case and it is a balancing act. And you know, the good thing about dividends is it keeps managers from being a little too spendy on their profits and maybe wasting it on ambitious projects. But the downside is again, the reduced growth potential. So I, I kind of see it as a balance act, and I also see it as it depends on the business. So I'll give an example. And every time I've given an example of a company in my portfolio, 
the next three to six months has been awful for it. So I apologize for you if you have this company in your portfolio. I have paychecks in the portfolio and they used to have even a higher payout ratio. But if I look at the payout ratio through the late 2010s, it was always around 80%. And so you think about they only leave 20% of their profits to put back in their business and do other things. But if you think about what Paychex does, basically they are a paycheck processor. So you know if, if you have a small business and you have three employees and you want to pay them and you don't want to deal with all the paperwork, administration and taxes and la la la, you can just use Paychex and they can give those paychecks out and make it really simple. So for them, they kind of naturally grow. If I'm a business, hopefully I'm hiring people every year. So if I hire three, four, five, six people, that's more money the paychecks every new hire. And so that particular business doesn't need a whole lot to have future growth, but they're also not probably going to grow like 20% a year because there's only so many small businesses out there in the United States. So that's kind of where I'm not too worried about a high payout ratio because it makes sense with their business model. But you could have another business where maybe they haven't grown at all. You know, Maybe their revenues are flat or they're actually declining and yet they have a payout ratio at 80%. Then you might start to think, hey, maybe they should not pay as much of a dividend so we can actually get the growth train running again. So I think it really depends. It is a balancing act, but that's how I would look at the risks of a high payout ratio versus the potential rewards from a high payout ratio. Yeah, that's all great stuff. And I think I love the way you kind of explain that and talk about kind of where the company is and what they're trying to do. It all comes down to this is part of the capital allocation for the CEO. And this is where we can, from the outside, judge how well we think the company is allocating its money. Because when they're giving us a dividend, that is now becomes our money. But we can decide whether we think that that is a good decision to pay us so much when the business is a either doing well or not doing well. And there's always trade-offs. You know, you give us 80% of their earnings that like Andrew said, there's only 20% left to reinvest. Well, if they have lots of opportunities to to reinvest and they choose to give us a big payout ratio and they come across an opportunity, they either have to pass or they have to do something like take on debt or issue equity, which may or may not be in the best interest of the business. And so this is really where it comes down to the capital allocation skills of the particular CEO that's or CFO who's running the company. And you can judge how well they do or don't. And the other part about dividends, which is can be challenging, is that once a company starts paying them, the stock market hates it when they cut it or they stop paying it. That's usually very, very bad for the stock price. And you know, as investors, we never want to see that. So once a company starts paying a dividend, they have to think about how they want to balance that out with the other things that they may or may not try to do. And some of it too, it's going to come down to the maturity of the business and where it is in its kind of evolution of a cycle of a business. Like Coca-Cola doesn't have as many opportunities to reinvest as let's say Paychex does, for example, because maybe they're not as far, you know, Paychex isn't as far along in their evolution on the scale for businesses. So maybe Coke has a different 
mentality. And so, though, but those are all things that when you analyze the company, you'll kind of realize and they can help you determine whether it's good or not good. But it all comes down to the capital capital allocation skills of the business. And that's why it's really important to really analyze this part of it and study it and determine whether, you know, if they're spending all their money on dividends and buybacks and they have nothing left for growth, then like Andrew was saying, at some point that's, it's going to give and that may or may not be the best thing for the investors. So do you have any examples of any companies with a low payout ratio that do a great job of reinvesting their profits for future growth? Yes. The first one that springs to mind is Visa. So Visa is paying out a blistering 19% of their payout of their earnings in a dividend. And so that leaves them 81% that they can reinvest in the company to do other things. And so they've been paying a dividend for a very long time, but it's not a big part of their capital allocation. The majority of it they either use for buybacks or they use it to reinvest in the business. And so that's a really good I think, example of a company. Another great one that kind of springs to mind would be Apple. Apple's yield or their payout ratio is pretty low compared to what they could pay out because they got a lot of cash and they got a lot of cash on the balance sheet. So if they wanted to pay out a really big dividend, they could do it for sure. It's a cash generation machine. But Tim Cook has chosen wisely, I think, to not to pay a dividend, which is great to give back to the shareholders, but I think he's also wisely holding back to use that cash hoard to to build on a business. What ones would spring to mind for you? Oh man, I mean, you're taking all the good ones here. <laughs> I mean, an easy one is Microsoft. They also have the last couple of years, their payout ratio has been below 30%. Mm-hmm. And they're obviously investing. I mean, it's technology is, is tricky because it can be like this never-ending rat race to reinvest, but they have done a good job of finding projects that have really paid off for them. The cloud being one of those and being the infrastructure of the internet, that's been super, super high growth for them. And so Satya definitely seems like he knows what he's doing and the numbers bear that out. So I know they're investing in like 5G stuff. and I mean, you could probably, we could be here all day long just talking about all the things they're investing in. So there's a lot of great businesses that do a lot of great reinvesting but it is you do have to be careful because a lot of businesses also waste it so it's good i think to have that i like the way was it luke yeah luke yeah i like the way luke kind of approached it from a risk basis because i think as investors that doesn't always come naturally but that's a good way to think about stocks is okay what's the downside trade-off here and if you can overcome that then hey this might be a great idea yeah exactly all right, so we, we, we got this great commentary from Stacy. I wanted to share with everybody. So, hi, I have made all the mistakes that you have both mentioned. I want to thank you for sharing all your knowledge. I heard that you have a newsletter. Where can I subscribe to that? This is from Stacy. So, Andrew, would you like to take that out? Yeah, you can just go on our website, einvestingforbeginners.com. We have our products tab. You can click on there, and the newsletter is right there featured at the top. You can't miss it. I do want to shout out, all these questions came from Spotify. They have this cool new feature where you can write in. And so shout out to all you guys. Thanks for engaging with us. And hopefully we can answer more questions like these in the future because these were all awesome. And last thing, no questions too stupid because we always forget what it's like to be a beginner. So if you're an absolute beginner, please write in. I mean, our show is called Investing for Beginners after all. So continue to write in and thanks for all the support. And 
hopefully we'll talk to you all next week. Yeah, perfect. All right. Okay. So that's going to wrap up our show for this week. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app if you enjoyed our little show. If you would, kindly consider giving us a review. It greatly helps the show. And don't forget to browse the incredible materials we've created for you at einvestingforbeginners.com. Lastly, continue growing your knowledge as an Investing for Beginners insider with insights and educational tips delivered right to your inbox for free. Sign up today. And with that, I'll go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.